Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So a story last week appeared in the New York Times that suggested there are now multiple strains of the COVID-19 virus, uh, genetically different, uh, and that different strains might explain some of the different behavior hitherto in different regions. So the professor and expert that was quoted in that story is David Engelthaler. It's not just people's policies and people's behaviors. It's actually what's happening with the virus. And if we do have different strains that are acting differently in different parts of the world, we're going to see different outcomes, at least in some part, because of that virus. Um, and he joined us from Phoenix in Arizona. Hi, David. Greetings, Freddie. So you are a co-director of TGen, which is a, um, a genetics and biotech research institute in Arizona. Um, you're also the former state epidemiologist of the state of Arizona. Is that roughly right? That's correct. Yeah, I spent a, a career in public health working government and in the last 15 years or so working in a nonprofit genomics research institute. So let's just dive straight in with this story that caught our eye. So, the maps uh, that were published in that story were really quite striking. They showed how there was a particular strain of COVID-19 that in the beginning uh, was not very present in Asia um, and kind of cropped up in Italy and seemed to grow out of there. Tell us about that. What, did you, what have you observed? What we're really seeing is that a what we can call a strain, essentially a mutation showed up in, in one of the strains coming out of likely China showing up in Europe uh, that altered seems to have altered the spike protein. And you, you've seen the pictures of the coronaviruses, those spikes on the outside. And this particular mutation seems to have made a, a minor modification in there that may have had a, a major effect on the pandemic. Uh, it's really um, quickly dominated all of the other strains that uh, were seen in Europe at the time. Uh, it became the prompt predominant strain that, that came into the Americas, spread throughout the United States and, and elsewhere in the Americas, and is now spread to pretty much every corner of the planet. So at the particular moment, which um, uh, of greatest difference, 
it showed tiny percentages of the virus in places like South Korea, Australia, and even mainland China showing this strain. But then over in Italy, where we had the European outbreak, it was 91% already at that stage of the virus was this new strain. So what should we deduce from that? Do you think that this was a more effective strain and that might partially explain why it exploded so much in northern Italy? Well, Freddie, what you're saying is is essentially what was being observed was that there seemed to be a, an epidemiological effect with this strain, that it seemed to be dominant wherever it showed up. Uh, and so that interesting observation is what then led to a series of uh, studies and tests to determine whether or not there really is something going on with this, this new strain of the virus. Uh, and that included a lot of getting it into the laboratory and doing what we would say in vitro tests, where we're actually testing it in cells. And it turns out that the virus did seem to replicate faster and it did seem to have uh, an effect in the cells that was different than the strain that was originally coming out of China. So then the question was, okay, is that really telling us that we have a, a different strain here? And now there's been multiple more studies and more lines of evidence uh, that give a really strong um, more than a suggestion, uh, probably leading to really compelling evidence uh, to say that that is what's happening with this new strain. So at that moment in time, the reason I think this is really significant is that we all remember that scary month. It was March and into April, uh, and suddenly um, the virus was really taking off in Italy. Um, and that is what really led to the whole West responding so dramatically to it. Uh, we then shut down in the UK a couple of weeks after that. Um, and at the time, it, no one was thinking about different strains, of course. It was just one virus. And the emphasis was all on government policy. And the presumption was that any differences between nations or between regions were to do with different governments handling it better or worse. And suddenly now, six months later, we find out that potentially it was a whole different strain of the virus, and there was a whole other explanation for that. Um, do you think that you know, this could be one of a number of discoveries that we make? And you know, How much should it make us reevaluate what the drivers of this disease have been all along? The, these are probably the, the questions we really do need to be asking now. People started asking them uh, when these observations were being seen many months ago. But there was also a lot of initial skepticism, which is what we have to do on the science side until we can prove it. So it's taken many months and many studies to, to generate enough compelling evidence to say that it's now pretty convincing that the strains with this mutation um, are, are a different beast than the original one. And, and if what everything that we're learning now is seems to hold true in the population, it does mean that these strains probably uh, moved a lot faster than what we were anticipating by looking at what was originally coming out of China. Uh, and therefore, a lot of the efforts to try to you know, get our arms around it and mitigate it may not have been as effective um, as we had hoped they would be. And so, yeah, I think we were fighting a virus that we learned most about coming out of China but really the strains that we are seeing evolving and moving through Europe and then coming to the, the Americas uh, seem to have been replicating faster and moving farther than the original strains. So even though it looks from the analysis that this, as it were, nastier strain has now migrated back to Asia and that when you do samples over there, it's kind of taken over, it still seems plausible that during that crucial period where it was really seeding so 
disastrously in, in Northern Europe and in North America, um, you know, we were dealing with essentially a different disease than what was happening in Asia. And I don't know what your view is on this, but could it partially explain why the Asian results remain to this day so very different to what we see in Europe and North America? So a couple of things. One, you had mentioned it a, potentially as a nastier virus. I don't want to suggest at all that this mutation, that there's any evidence to say that this mutation has actually made the virus more virulent. And, and, and in fact, pretty much every study so far has shown that that's not the case. So it doesn't seem to be causing a more serious disease. If anything, it seems to be causing a lot more upper respiratory infection, which may be allowing for the spread from human to human a lot faster. But your point, I think, is is... Um, is a valid, uh, it's a valid point based off of the evidence that we have now that uh, we, we're actually um, maybe dealing with a virus that we couldn't have completely got our arms around uh, with, you know, a variety of mitigation strategies. And maybe the, at least here's in my, my viewpoint, is that much, much more effort should have been around focusing on preventing deaths in the people that we knew were going to die uh, because they still died. Uh, which to me is the biggest tragedy in all of this. I think the vast majority of those deaths could have been prevented if the focus would have been on protecting them rather than on trying to prevent any spread of, of this virus, which I pretty much don't think is is containable. Because so there's two really interesting points there. That The first is the Asian comparison. And I don't know about Arizona or uh, North America, but over here, it, the refrain is constant that, you know, we'll look at Taiwan, look at South Korea, Look at Australia, look how well they've performed as if it's a sort of competition. Um, and meanwhile, all of these, North, these European and North American areas have been so badly affected. Maybe it, it's not the right comparison to make. Um, and actually, as you say, the reason they're doing so well over there is not because just they're really clever at test and trace and they've got amazingly good lockdown policies in place. Maybe it's because of actual genetic differences in the virus at crucial times in its cycle. How, how much confidence do you think we can have in that idea? I do think that um, one thing that does seem to get lost in all of this is that there's a, a really important factor uh, in this pandemic, and it's the virus. It's not just people's policies and people's behaviors. It's actually what's happening with the virus. And if we do have different strains that are acting differently in different parts of the world, we're going to see different outcomes at least in some part because of that virus, not just based off of public policies and response, no matter what we do. Um, so I do think that, again, I think there's some validity in that. Um, you know, several of the early strains, and I'll just speak from the Arizona perspective, several of the early introductions that we had were coming either out of China, out of Asia, or out of Western states in the United States that came to Arizona that originated from China. And the majority of those fizzled out pretty quickly. Like we didn't see any transmission. We had a couple outbreaks, and then all of a sudden we started having explosive outbreaks. We go back and look genomically, the vast majority of those cases where we had very large outbreaks were being driven by the strains that were really coming from the East Coast, coming from Europe, which all seem to have this particular mutation in the, in the spike protein. So where we can't definitively say um, that the virus is that different on a population level. It sure seems to be that way. And that means that policies don't have 100% effect. They have some effect, but there's some portion of the effect is also from the virus. Because Arizona being near the Pacific 
coast. So what you're saying is that North America was essentially assaulted with both from both directions, from the sort of Chinese strain coming in from the West, and then from Europe, uh, originally from Italy, was potentially this new strain. And that via New York and New Jersey, um, that's where the really bad infection happened. Is that? Yeah, in fact, actually, some of our very first cases with the European strains actually came directly from Europe. Uh, because that that travel ban did not happen uh, right away either, and and that that's not to blame any policy there. It's just we can go back and see where those those original cases come from. Uh, but then many come from the East Coast. So you're right; it was a is a multi front attack. But so skeptics who are watching will now say, well, if the this more more uh, this better at transmitting strain um, has now transmitted back to Asia, back to Australia, back to those parts of the world. And yet they're still showing uh, a better performance and, and fewer infections than we are. Um, that takes away the variable and, uh, uh, you know, that can't explain those differences in, in outcomes. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, I think that that's actually quite possible, uh, that, that the alternate hypothesis here is true and that, that it's not driving these major differences on a population level. Uh, but. On the other hand, you can't compare the original introductions of this virus in one location to a reintroduction of a virus in another that's already got, been going through a pandemic where you have some amount of immunity built up and a lot of um, practices already in place and have been in place for many months to try to decrease the amount of right. transmission. So it's... it's so actually, so, so even if this new strain is now everywhere. The, the fact that it was particularly present in places like Italy, London, some European cities, and then New York and New Jersey meant that it was potentially seeded much more substantially there, um, and it would have been harder to deal with. I, th I think that that's definitely is a possibility. But we also definitely have not only different public policies in place in different parts of the world, we have different cultures and people have responded differently. And, and some places a lockdown was actually more readily absorbed into a culture and in other places um, the culture was more allergic to it, say like in the United States. But the other thing you mentioned, which I thought was so interesting is that you know, you're speaking as a former state epidemiologist whose job is to work out strategies and responses to um, epidemics that you would have liked to see more of a focus on uh, protecting vulnerable groups yeah. better in those early months um, and less of an attempt to suppress the thing uh, across the whole population. How would that have worked practically, do you think? Yeah, so let me just, let's just step back to the conversation we're having. You know, I think that this is a very gross uh, characterization, but just for the purpose of the conversation, that the original strains that we were seeing uh, of this were a, like a SARS, serious SARS-like infection that spread like an influenza. So that's different than, than SARS, so it spread more. But, you know, it was something where thought we could get our arms around, we could, you know, build a wall around every case, contact trace, and, and try to shut this down. But what we're really seeing is a SARS-like infection that spreads like the common cold. And with, there's no way that we could put in mitigation strategies to stop the common cold. And so I, I think that's, that might be, you know, kind of a, a divining line um, between the, those two, um, the two different strains, if you will, that, that we're dealing with. Uh, so I, with, with that, if it, if it really is spread that easily, we're wasting a ton of effort trying to stop that spread completely. We know 
we got to slow it down for two major reasons. One was to try to make sure it didn't get into grandma and grandpa and it didn't kill them. And two is so that we didn't overload our healthcare system, our hospitals, so that we could continue to absorb the most serious of, of patients. So the goal there is spread, slow down that spread. But if we're trying not to, to kill off our elders with this virus, we really needed to do as much to build a wall around them. And I know that that wasn't ignored. There was a lot of effort in that, but I would have put a lot more eggs in that basket uh, because that's who died. Over 70% uh, of deaths were coming from this one age group that was primarily over 70, yet that's, that's a smaller, much smaller fraction of the total number of cases. And we're spending our time on a lot of these where um, that didn't prevent the deaths. So practically that means then less emphasis on population-wide stay-at-home orders or lockdowns or whatever you want to call them, less emphasis on sort of young people um, being unable to do certain activities and more emphasis on, you know, really. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Policing who comes in and out of old people's homes with testing on site. Is that the sort of idea? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think less emphasis in some places, you know, on these these total lockdowns, which as an epidemiologist, I think has just been devastating in a way that we haven't even properly appropriately characterized yet. But we do know a lot of those metrics about you know, increased depression and suicides and, and uh, lack of socialization with our younger and the long-term effects on that and, and actually really poor education happening this year, even though teachers are trying really hard. Uh, we, we're starting to see the, the effects of those, but we haven't been characterizing it. So I think that that has, uh, that piece has had a really negative effect. I do think that we've learned that 
masking and distancing are actually, they, they work really well. They're not perfect. Masks are not a perfect um, solution. Uh, but they slow down the possibility of the spread to the next person. So when we're trying to slow down, instead of trying to stop, which is um, so draconian and I think so harmful, but trying to slow down by masking and distancing, it makes it harder for the virus to find that next person. Just like what um, the vaccine is going to do once that starts getting into people and immunizing, it's going to be harder for the virus to find that next person, which in the end is going to hopefully prevent it from sneaking its way into a, in a long-term care facility or, or a, a congregate setting for older individuals. Um, but so I do think that we don't want to give that up. That's really important to still do that. But a lot more time, energy and money focused on saving those that if we don't, they're going to die. I, I fear, though, that the, at least politically, that argument has been lost. Donald Trump obviously uh, has lost at uh, the polls, as some of our commenters may not agree with that. Um, but it looks like it's headed for that outcome. Um, and here in Europe, you know, pretty much all countries now, even Sweden, um, has started to impose more restrictions. So it now seems like it's the kind of consensus among Western governments that these population-wide measures are the right way forward. Um, I guess the, the arrival of good news on the vaccine front would have cemented that. Um, do you feel that we, we've now got the precedent that, you know, next time there's a virus like this, everyone is now going to say, right, time to lock down again? I'm hoping there's going to be a number of retrospective studies in the end to, to show um, kind of the balance of the effect of the, the lockdown versus the kind of the common sense uh, approaches to slow down the virus like we, we've already been talking about. And, and, and maybe those can be a little bit um, more stringent um, as well. You know, there's talks of per perhaps curfews because a lot of the social is the uninhibited socialization occurs after 10 p.m., of course, uh, and it occurs in our bars and, and nightclubs and things like that. That's that's not surprising. And do you I feel do like the, within the epidemiological or scientific community, uh, at least the people you're in contact with, is that a, a widespread view or, or, or do you think you're a sort of outlier on that? Publicly, I'm probably a bit of an outlier. Um, privately, behind closed doors, there's a there definitely has been a lot of discussion from the very beginning that, you know, there's no scientific evidence that shutting down schools actually helps to um, to stop a, a pandemic. And that is even for things where kids can transmit the virus effectively. They don't transmit this virus very effectively. Uh, they don't transmit it between each other. They don't typically get very sick from it. Uh, and it'd be harder for them to transmit it to adults. It does happen um, for sure. But epidemiologists know that. They knew that from the beginning, but that was not a popular uh, opinion to take publicly and, and uh, seems, seems to have been kind of left to the aside and we shut down all the schools. I don't think that was a, a, a good thing. Um, so I think there's a number of things like that, um, but I don't know, there's no complete consensus on, on a lot of these either. We're really trying to learn of this. So let's just look ahead a little bit. Um, you know, you're an expert in the um, genomics and in um, the genetic makeup of some of these viruses. We've seen one mutation that has been documented. How likely is it that there'll be other mutations in the coming year, for example? Yeah, so, um, well, one, I, I don't wanna consider myself an expert because we're all still really new at this particular virus, but I, yeah, certainly I've been working in this field for, for quite some time. Uh, and what, what we're seeing here is, is what we know about 
pretty much any pathogen or or biological entity is that they evolve, they mutate, and this is certainly what has been happening. So this is just one of probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of mutations that have occurred. Most most of the mutations that occur, they go away. They don't get replicated in the in into the genetic code. And even if they do, most people don't actually transmit to another person. Uh, so then that's a dead end for that virus. So this constantly mutating, there's just constantly typos occurring within um, the, the virus itself. In fact, it's estimated about once every two weeks. So that's about once every infection or every two infections. And with the, the millions of infections that you see, there's lots of opportunity for that. Sometimes those mutations can be really deadly to the virus and then it can't replicate and it'll, it'll, it'll just disappear. Sometimes they just do nothing. Uh, and those just become markers that we use to build like the family tree so that we can track the virus, you know, kind of like that ancestry.com that we use here to, to look at family lineages. We do that with the virus, but then sometimes it'll change a protein or it'll change something just enough that it makes it a slightly different flavor. We don't know what that'll be until that happens. And when you're talking that kind of number, the chances of a more successful one start being quite high, I suppose, like we saw with this new strain that you've observed. How, how does that affect the kind of vaccination argument, do you think? I mean, in a way, is this the virus constantly trying to overcome the vaccine by mutating all the time? And, and, and will it ultimately be successful? Yeah, I, I think that this is a really important topic that's being looked at right now. One, with all the differences that we've seen in, in the genomes, and even with a mutation like this in the spike protein, it looks like all the vaccines will still be effective. But um, we, we frequently have vaccine escape because there's a mutation that then allows it to not, um, to, to essentially escape the, the effect of a vaccine. Uh, and then that goes on to be selected for, and then we see more of that till we get a vaccine or a treatment to respond to that. Uh, we see this with influenza all the time, right? That influenza virus is constantly changing. So we have to make tweaks to the to the vaccine and sometimes we have to make really big changes to the vaccine because of that constant evolution so we are in this kind of this evolutionary arms race against the microbes around us all the time this one isn't going to be any different if we still have this virus with us for years to come it's quite possible and quite likely that we'll have to have updated vaccines to respond to it and then there's the question of the duration of immunity that's something that's uncertain at the moment as well like how how long uh the shielding would um, kind of be in place for if people are vaccinated? Uh, would they need booster jabs every year thereafter? Do you have a view on that? Yeah, well, we don't know totally yet, but it does seem likely. What we've known about human coronaviruses is that an immune response um, can typically last for a, a couple of years. So you're not gonna get infected with the same strain of the common cold coronavirus um, repeatedly in the same year, you might get a couple of colds in the same year, but they're going to be different viruses and it may take a couple of years. So um, what we've learned so far is that people's immune response, um, at least the antibody response lasts for at least six months. And that's only because the studies have only gone on that long. So we do think there's an ex there's some amount of time and it may be a year, maybe a couple of years, but I do think a, a repeated jab uh, is going to be necessary and that might be on an annual basis. This is kind of significant, isn't it, though? Because at the moment, um, the vaccination is talked about as the end of the story. Uh, you know, hooray, the vaccine has arrived. Just 
stay shut down, hold your breath, we'll get there in the spring, you'll have your jab and then we'll be okay. But really what we're saying to people is, this is the beginning of a kind of lifelong struggle against this particular virus. Uh, everyone is now going to be signed up for sort of periodic vaccinations until they die. Uh, and potentially the virus will then be mutating, so they'll need different kinds of vaccines to deal with new strains as and when they arrive. So it's really the beginning of a new chapter rather than the end of the story. Uh, yeah, I think that that's probably true. Although you're, the, the first part was absolutely true as well. Yay, the vaccines. Uh, this is really, um, you know, I gotta say, I am, I'm really happy this, pa this pandemic is happening this year uh, in this day and age, because we are able to use 21st century science and technology to respond to this. And with vaccines being invented, developed, tested, trialed, produced, and delivered all within the same year is completely unheard of and, and actually ridiculous. Only Hollywood would have come up with that, but we're able to do that. And so that's fantastic. And they do look, at least from the information we have so far, like they're gonna provide a lot of effectiveness, but we can't say, well, that's gonna be the end of the story. I don't think it means we're gonna have to walk around with masks on for the rest of our lives. I do think the vaccine's gonna have a tremendous effect on us and it's gonna help us save uh, those that would otherwise die and, and allow us to get back to a, a more normal interaction in society. Society, uh, but we're going to, if the virus doesn't just disappear like the SARS did, um, then we're going to likely have to get um, a, a jab every year or so to, to, to keep it at bay. And that's fine because we do that with influenza. Vaccines are a normal part of how humanity responds to Mother Nature. And this would just be a, another chapter in that story. There is no, as far as I know, there is no pediatric vaccine uh, that is even at this stage of development. Maybe someone's developing one, but I haven't heard about it. Do you think we should be vaccinating children against COVID-19? The point of, of potentially uh, immunizing children is not to, it's really not to save them, but it's that going back to that trying to achieve maximal community immunity to maybe we can keep this virus at bay. And it's not it's not going to be a big deal except every once in a while an, an outbreak shows up in this country or that country like what we see uh, with measles quite frequently or or, um, or or polio which polio we vanquished but it's still out there uh, and so we're still trying to get those populations immunized I think there's there's a whole lot in there I'm not disagreeing that children are are um, a lower priority because I absolutely think they are for the vaccine but the, uh, just to, to end on this because I think it's so important and there's a lot of so much heat and, uh, developed about this. The bit I still struggle to understand is if everyone who is vulnerable in a vulnerable group, either for a, a co-morbidity or, a, or a, uh, being elderly, has been offered the vaccine, so if they want to take it, they can, uh, that would then mean that everyone in society who is really at risk from this disease has had the chance to be protected. At that point, it seems fair to say that you know, those people who are not worried about it can go about their business because you know, there's, there'll, be no, there'll be zero cases of putting someone in a threatening situation who has not chosen to be in that situation. Am I thinking this through well or am I, have I made some fundamental mistake here? <laughs> I think generally I, I agree with that supposition. But when we look more specifically, we know the vaccine will not work for everybody who gets it. So there will be some people who actually try to get immunized and they still can't, and so they're still gonna be at risk. We also know that 
there are people that are at risk that they don't know they're at risk. There are, we still have these, um, these outlier cases and outlier outbreaks and situations where people who would, by all other circumstances, seem to be at low risk, still having very serious disease and still having death. So we want to limit that amount too. And, and if we're talking about it, like if we're already there, and I really hope we get there that we can worry about this problem so that not looking at the daily numbers of thousands to tens of thousands of deaths every day, we hopefully we'll be on that. We can talk about this, which is a, a probably an easier problem. It's a better problem, not an easier problem. It's a better problem for us to deal with. And, and we can hash it back and forth. There won't be a, a true answer. There won't be a, a, an exactly right answer. And it's probably going to depend on the population, what they're most comfortable with, whatever country or, or, or their elected leaders or, or their leaders um, actually propose and deal with too. Do you think that the next virus, COVID-21, let's pray that that doesn't happen, but it could especially now everyone is so hyper alert to new viruses, you know, one new virus and everyone will probably be quite panicked compared to what happened previously. Do you think that's also part of this new world that every time there's a new virus, the default is to, you know, err on the side of caution by suspending life? I think there will be a lot quicker suspension of, of life, as you say, of, of society, uh, which is maybe, maybe fortunate if the next one is like the 1918 flu that um, will, will just ravage people so fast and it would be really hard to get in front of that. If we can, if we know that we can shut down uh, much quicker, learn about it and, and get things going again, that, that might be a positive. But if the next one is another flavor of this or, or um, you know, something similar but causes a panic, we saw the panic with Ebola in West Africa and how that panicked the entire world. Uh, thankfully, we didn't go into the, the lockdown mode then. But I do think that it is possible we're going to see a number of these false starts because everybody's worried about the, the next big one. And, and frankly, I want us to be a bit worried about it in that we're, we're planning and, and being better prepared for it. Wow, well, it sounds like um, we have possibly a lot more to talk about on this story in the years to come. It would be lovely to think that it's all gonna end in the spring, um, but from what you're saying, it sounds like it may not. Um, thank you, David Engelthaler, for your time. You bet, Freddie, it's great talking with you. That was David Engelthaler from TGen, the Genomics and Biotech Research Institute based out of Phoenix, Arizona, um, talking to us initially about different strains of COVID-19 and what they might or might not mean. And we then broadened into quite an interesting discussion of future scenarios for this uh, disease. So learned quite a lot. Thanks to him. Hope you found it interesting. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.